Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon. And in this show, in this episode, as always, what happens is Callum has written me a script. It feels like a lengthy one. Uh, this is a full-length episode. I know we also do our shorts, but this is The Poisonous Romance of Madeline Smith. It's a good while long. What happens here, of course, Callum writes the script. I shall read the script. And uh, while you guys listen along, we'll explore it together. Uh, If you're new here, I don't read these ahead of time. So I'm exploring this along with you. Let's just jump into it. Some things never change. I know it's a worn-out cliche, but it bears repeating, especially after I just spent dozens of hours exploring the archives of infamy for the benefit of discerning true crime connoisseurs like yourselves. What becomes quickly apparent is that there are certain features of crime and punishment that have always existed and probably always will. Different eras, different tech same human stories. Today's case took place all the way back in the Victorian era, a time when showing a bit of ankle would cause a neighborhood scandal. Despite the gap in time and culture, I think you'll agree that there are plenty of recognizable features in this 160-year-old tale of passion, both romantic and violent. Yeah, I mean, one thing we've talked about a few times in these episodes is, of course, DNA evidence. And when that came along, it was like, oh, people are going to get in trouble. And there was one recent one where they could only tell, it was the Japanese one, it was a short, where they could only tell uh, what type blood someone had from the like DNA that they'd, or the, the body liquid, like I think it was saliva, that they'd recovered at the scene. But now, it's like, I mean, I guess the statutes of limitations and stuff, but not for all crimes, not for like murder and stuff. I don't know. And it obviously depends on the country. But yeah, like those people who committed crimes in the past and there's like DNA comes along. It's like, oh, you're going to get in trouble. Anyway, let's move on. Definitely didn't have this in the Victorian times. And they're all dead now. So, you know, they're okay. <laughs> Middle-class Victorian Brits thought themselves very civilized above all the vice of foreigners and poor people. So, I guess poor people didn't count as Brits. So you can imagine the shock when one of their own, a wealthy young woman, found herself on the dock for murder. And I have to warn you, it gets so much worse than that. I feel sick just thinking about it, but I have a responsibility to the truth, no matter how terrible it is. Anyone of a sensitive disposition should cover their ears now. Today's episode features a case of premarital sex. Oh my god, how are we ever going to wash the blood and dirt off our hands? What, you're not shocked? Okay, maybe I hyped it up a little bit too much, but give me a break. I've had my head stuck in 19th century news reports all day, and trust me, it was a much bigger deal back then. See for yourself. Let me take you to the streets of Queen Victoria's Britain, all the way back in 1857, where we'll explore the case of Madeline Hamilton Smith. Just promise not to drink the water while we're there. I don't want you giving me cholera. The cast. The story takes place in Glasgow, a place which at the time was famous for shipbuilding and heavy industry. The shipyards and factories of the city regularly spewed out blankets of smog, which would make modern Beijing's air look positively crisp and clean in comparison. And I have been to Beijing, and uh, but that that really is saying something. The air in Beijing is unpleasant. Another effect of the city's strong industrial pedigree was its social dynamics. The wealthy upper classes inhabited fancy townhouses in the west and centre of town, in contrast to the poor factory workers and labourers who often endured poverty conditions on the outskirts. The class system, as was usually the case in the UK, was very acutely felt on these streets. But just as James Cameron taught us with Titanic, that sort of thing sets the stage for some compelling romantic drama. And that's exactly how today's case began. 
like a James Cameron movie. The lovers in question were Madeline Smith and Pierre-Emile L'Angelier. Going to imagine he's French with a name like that. They first met in 1855 when she was just 20 years old and he was in his early 30s. She was the well educated daughter of a wealthy architect, heavily drilled in the proper conduct for a young Victorian lady. She had studied in London at Mrs. Alice Gorton's Academy for Young Ladies. That sounds made up, but you know, Victorian times. As you can guess, they didn't focus too much on the STEM subjects. Uh, women's education in those days focused more on how properly to address suitors and sew a tear in your husband's waistcoat. Ah, the past. <laughs> Madeline wasn't exactly the docile housewife type, however. She played the part by going to all sorts of social functions with her family, which were just where rich people went to trade kids for social status. But underneath her polite manners, she had a hidden rebellious streak. Her outlet for this was Pierre. He had been raised on Jersey, an island in the English Channel, which is a dependency of the UK. Pierre's parents were, unsurprisingly, given the name, French. How, how did I ever guess that with a name like Pierre-Emile L'Angelier? Although that kind of sounds like L'Angelier sounds like English somehow. Like, don't they? What's the word for English in French? Anglaise? Anglais? I'm not sure. His father was a small-time seed merchant who sold mostly to the francophone locals. In a bid to boost business and draw in English-speaking clientele, Pierre's father encouraged him into an apprenticeship and English studies. By the end, young Pierre was pretty fluent. Along the way, he won the friendship of a wealthy Scotsman who offered him a job on his estate. Golden ticket in hand, Pierre traveled to Edinburgh for some preliminary training in Scottish botany, which is not slang for cannabis farming, I swear. During his training, however, his wealthy benefactor died, so without any money to travel home, he ended up staying on in the plant nursery for another year. It was in 1852 when he moved to Glasgow, right taking a job as a warehouse clerk. Things were going relatively well for Pierre by this point in the Scottish phase of his life. Decent enough salary, good social life. But what he didn't have was a wife, a key part of the Victorian dream. <laughs> and not any old wife would have done for Pierre. He had ambitions to climb the social ladder. Well, this woman was rich. It sounds like he succeeded. Although I'm going to get the feeling maybe he's going to get murdered. <laughs> Is Pierre the victim today? <laughs> I get the feeling he might be. Or wait, did he murder her? What was the title? The Poisonous Romance of Madeline Smith. I get the feeling that Madeline Smith is our culprit because she's in the title that Callum chose. It was the spring of 1855 when he first set eyes on young Madeline. This was before the days of pickup lines, so he needed to find some way to approach her. Eventually, he discovered that they had a mutual acquaintance, a middle-aged woman named Mary Penny, who lived in Madeline's neighborhood. Now the stage was set for the main act in the wild drama of Madeline's young life and the final act in Pierre's. Oh, there we go. Pierre is the one who gets killed today. Yes. Their relationship. They began meeting each other in private whenever possible. Madeline would spend the evening with her family at their home in Blytheswood Square, and then, after they had said goodnight, try to steal as many moments with her boyfriend as possible. Visits to her bedroom window, sneaking to the bottom of the garden. You know, classic Shakespeare stuff. Come on, Callum, it's Shakespeare, there's got to be a balcony. There's those, uh... They're even called, in the UK, I don't know if this is international, we call like a, you know one of those balconies where it's just there's a window and then there's a barrier outside that kind of looks like there should be a, a balcony there, but there's not. We call them Juliet balconies, because obviously, you know, Juliet would stand and wave out of the window to Romeo. But these are, I don't understand them, they're kind of pointless. It's like, one, it's, it's just a window then, isn't it? During the day, they arranged brief rendezvous at a nearby shop and in quieter parts of the neighborhood. It's understandable why Madeline enjoyed the idea of a secret romance with an older foreigner with a French accent 
no less. And as for Pierre, well, his new girlfriend was a good-looking 20-year-old with boatloads of cash, need I say more? They're well matched then. Is she gonna kill him? But because of the scandalous class divide between the two, their relationship could not be made public. With limited in-person contact, they resorted instead to writing letters to each other pretty much every day. Pierre would slip his through Madeline's window, and she would post hers to his apartment. Ah, yes, but as I've got another channel, Business Players, where an ongoing like in-joke on that channel is don't write down your crimes. And in this case, some, someone's gonna discover those letters. I feel. They were pretty careful to be sure that nobody found out. Madeline burns the letters after reading for fear of her servants happening across them. Whereas Pierre kept them all. Oh no, Pierre. Madeline, that's smart though. But they were evidently not careful enough. Eventually, Madeline's father wised up to the amorous Frenchman loitering around his garden in the evening and demanded that she stop speaking to him immediately. It seemed like the end of the relationship, but Pierre convinced her that he would find a way to make it work. He asked Mary Perry to let them meet in secret at her place, and she agreed. So, the clandestine meetings and secret letters can continued. In fact, they didn't just continue, they intensified. See, somewhere along the way, either at Miss Perry's house or after sneaking into Madeline's bedroom, their relationship became physical. And this is, you know, Victoria, dun dun dun. The letters started to reflect that fact with mentions of certain desires which were not befitting of any decent Victorian lad or lady. The eggplant emerged. <laughs> Had have been invented back then, we could safely assume that it would have been used. Part of the, <laughs> the eggplant emoji is brilliant. I'm so mature. <laughs> Part of the reason neither Pierre nor Madeline saw a problem with this is that they believed themselves essentially as good as married. Madeline started referring to herself as Mimi L'Angeliere and his darling wife. That wasn't just make-believe, the two really did plan to marry, even though Madeline's rational side knew that it could never happen. Regardless, the couple got engaged. Yeah, but seeing yourself as being married is not the same as being legally married. But as you're well aware, if there were a happy ending in store for that union, then you wouldn't be hearing about it on this show. No, especially not in the longer episodes. Sometimes in the short episodes we do, it's sometimes a happy... I mean, no, it really is. The Problem I bet you're imagining a scenario in which Madeline's father finds out about the whole thing and challenges Pierre to a duel or whatever people did in those days, but no, the truth is much stranger than that. See, after chasing Johnny Foreigner away from his daughter, Mr. Smith was under the impression that she was single and ready to respectably mingle. In the latter half of 1856, her parents decided it was time they shipped their daughter off to her husband. The man they chose was a neighbor, William Minnick, who had established himself as a successful young merchants. After putting the idea to Mr. Minnick, the family traveled with him to their riverside summer house in the country to see if Madeline would take him. The past was the worst, right? <laughs> no one likes this. At this point, Madeline either decided that marrying within her class would be far more convenient, or that maybe Pierre wasn't really all that. Because in January 1857, she decided to accept Minnick's marriage proposal, meaning that she had one official fiancé and one secret one. The romance novel lifestyle is all well and good until you're dealing with a headache like that. Or maybe, I mean, maybe she just felt like immense pressure from her parents and the rest of society to get married to someone she didn't like. Always remember, the past was the worst especially if you were a woman. And that doesn't mean that I think the present is perfect. <laughs> There's plenty of things we need to fix here as well. But the past was worse. It was worse. 
Obviously, she wasn't interested in a future with a secret husband, so something had to give. It was Pierre who got the dreaded au revoir, and he took to it about as badly as possible. I mean, we all act a bit crazy after a breakup, but he was downright spiteful. Pierre refused to let Madeline leave him. How did he achieve that? Well, I told you that he kept all the letters that she sent him. When Madeline wrote to him to break off their relationship, she asked that the letters be returned to her to destroy. She said, Altogether, I think, owing to coolness and indifference, nothing else, that we had better, for the future, consider ourselves as strangers. I trust your honor as a gentleman that you will not reveal anything that may have passed between us. I shall feel obliged by your bringing me my letters and likeness on Thursday evening at 7. P.S. You may be astonished at this sudden change, but for some time back you must have noticed a coolness in my notes. My love for you has ceased. I did once love you truly, fondly, but for some time back I've lost much of that love. Look, man, if you wanted to be really sneaky and probably a bit sensible. You shouldn't have broken up with him immediately. You should have secured those letters and then broken up with him. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but that one seems a bit obvious. <laughs> Look, you'll notice that she made no mention of her main guy in the letter to her side guy. That's because Madeline seems to have thought the whole thing would go more smoothly if she sold Pierre a simpler story, but smoothly it did not go. The Death Pierre replied, that he would be keeping the letters. What's more, he would be keeping Madeline too. If she went through with a plan to cut things off, he would go to her father with all of the letters she wrote him and reveal every word. This was the old school version of revenge porn, and it was equally as despicable. See what I mean? Same stories, <sighs> different age. Yeah, this, I mean, it always existed like this. I, I think in the modern age, the problem is there's a lot more communication. There's a lot, you know, there's, there's photographs and, and video for one, which makes it even more complicated. But yeah, I mean, essentially, same story, different age. Madeline did the only thing she could do. She kept going on with the relationship. See, there weren't any laws back then which could have protected her from that sort of thing. Hell, it's only fairly recently that we've got anything protecting us from the digital equivalent. Victorian society was, of course, much, much further behind. If Madeline had tried to call Pierre's bluff, but he actually went through with it, her life would be torn to pieces. She would be shunned and shamed to everyone she knew, and face severe punishment from her family if they would even speak to her at all. She wrote back asking to see Pierre as soon as possible. Her letters took on the same warm tone as before, and their usual schedule of secret meetings resumed. Rumors of the engagement reached Pierre's ears, and Madeline had to dismiss them as hearsay, insisting that she fully intended to marry him and no one else. Her hands were well and truly tied. Whether Pierre believed the lie or not, he didn't care. Even if that wealthy posh boy had won her over, he had the letters. It's unclear what his long-term plan was, though. Did he think he could marry her and Edgar old together with papers just sitting in a locked drawer as collateral? Or was he perhaps more of a short-term kind of guy? Well, he seems. I mean, he seems to be going for the long-term thing, because he wants to be in a relationship with her. Um, but then I don't really feel like you can blackmail people into being with you. Maybe you can blackmail someone into being with you for life, but it's going to be really awkward. Either way, he got what he wanted. Over the next couple of months, Pierre continued to go to Madeline's window for a chat, a cup of cocoa, and probably something more intimate. He started writing short entries in a diary shortly after Madeline had sent her rejection letter, detailing his plan to extort affection from her. It's not really affection then, is it? I mean... It can be physical, but it's not affection. In the pages which followed, he kept track of the various meetings and letters, as well as the rest of the goings-on in his daily life. Oh, Pierre, don't write down your crimes. Come on, Pierre. On several nights, he recounted feeling incredibly sick with severe stomach pains. Food hygiene probably wasn't the greatest in the 1800s, so it was nothing to seriously worry about. You're being poisoned, Pierre. Immediately, I know this. Women poison. That's their, their way of killing. We know this from this show and other shows and television and 
everything. That's how women kill at a lot of the time. And yeah, she's killing you, Pierre. Wake up. Or at least it wouldn't have been if, he had to, if it had simply let up. But this happened twice within the first few months of the year, both times shortly after making a trip to the Smith household. The first to put Pierre out of commission for just one day, but the second left him confined to his bed from the 22nd of February until the end of the month. And then a month later, on the 23rd of March at around 2am, Pierre was in really bad shape. His landlady watched him come through the door, clutching his stomach in agony for the third time in less than two months, and asked what was wrong. Don't you write a letter and be like, hey Madeline, are you okay? I seem to have got really bad food poisoning from the food last night night. Do you have anything? (laughs) Oh, Pierre, come on. He said he had no idea. It was likely another bile issue and leaned on her shoulder as they slowly made their way up the stairs. Things got even worse when Pierre was laying in bed, so his landlady decided to call a doctor who arrived at 7am. The good doctor did the only thing doctors did in those days. He prescribed opium, water laced with a chemical called laudanum, to be precise. But, shockingly, hard drugs didn't cure all of his ailments, and Pierre continued struggling for several hours before eventually falling asleep. The doctor returned at 11am for a checkup, and the landlady told him her tenant's condition had improved. The doctor, however, with all his medical expertise, argued that it had actually worsened dramatically because the man was dead. Yeah, I mean, the doctor might be... Pres- I, I mean, opium doesn't seem unreasonable. He's in a lot of pain. There's nothing he can do about it. I mean, sure, give him some opium, it'll ease the pain. Doesn't seem like a terrible medical condition. I mean, unless it was the opium that killed him, but I think it was probably the poisoning. The Arrest and Trial So, before we go any further, let's test your detective skills with a little quiz. Who had the motive to kill Pierre? Who had the means? Who had the opportunity? If you need me to tell the answers then you're probably not cut out for police work. Again, as I always say on the show, if you're a detective listening and you didn't figure it out, what are you doing? And if you're, everyone knows. It, it was, it was, if it's not Madeline, I'm shocked. Maybe it was the dad and she told him, like Madeline told the dad what was going on and the dad decided to poison him. Maybe, but then I think it just straight up kill him. So I think it's Madeline. The Glasgow police, on the other hand, answered them all fairly quickly. After searching through Pierre's belongings, they came across a certain bundle of letters which pointed them in the direction of the Smith household. That's your motive and opportunity right there. Ah, yes, Pierre writing down his crimes. As for the means, the coroner had found huge amounts of arsenic in Pierre's stomach, a strong poison which was used for various household functions back in those days. While these details were being unearthed in Pierre's rented room, Madeline was out of town. Her family had woken up to find that she had fled to their summer house on the Isle of Clyde. Her fiancé, the legit one that is, went to find her along with her brother Jack. They found her on a steamer boat alone. When they got to the summer house, he asked her why she was being all weird, and she cryptically replied that she had done something wrong and she knew her parents would be angry with her. Yeah, no shit, Madeline. You murdered Pierre with poison and you made it really easy for the police. You had a strong motive and you made it easy for the police to figure it out. What? Just destroy the letters. You could have destroyed the letters. All the signs seem to suggest that Madeline was guilty and she was arrested just eight days after Pierre's death. When searching through her belongings, the police found evidence of arsenic purchases within the last few months. Or may, though maybe, maybe this is just so obvious, and she's she's get being set up by someone, but who and why? I, I, I think she's guilty. Before the Glasgow courts could prepare for a trial, the court of public opinion had fast-tracked one through. The newspapers reported on the biggest scandal to hit Scottish society in years, revealing as much of the sordid details as their readers' delicate sensibilities would allow. The Victorians loved a good media shitstorm slash frenzy to lead as appropriate. <laughs> I like Callum's notes on ha- what sort of language we want to use in the show. <laughs> I imagine we're bleeping out shitstorm, but I like it. It doesn't feel very Victorian England, though, but 
one thing I really like is modern language applied to old stories. Like, the, a retelling of the Bible with modern language would be amazing. And commenters rose up on both sides to attack both Madeline and Pierre. Some argued that Pierre was an evil manipulator and Madeline his innocent victim. They're both bad people. He was, a, he was a, an evil manipulator and Madeline was a murderer. But the bulk ran with the angle that she was a depraved and wicked woman, further proven by the fact that she, shocking, enjoyed sexual intercourse. Terrible. As my treasured copy of the American Law Register, February 1858, puts it, Madeline Smith was tried and condemned by the public from which the jury was selected before she was arraigned. The noise kicked up around the case was so great that a trial in the defendant's hometown was out of the question. Proceedings were instead moved over to the High Court in Edinburgh starting in July of 1857. Madeline faced charges of poisoning Pierre with spiked drinks on three separate occasions, the third one resulting in his murder. The exact words from the indictment were wickedly and felonously administering arsenic, which sounds much better than what I said. <laughs> that does wickedly and felonously administering arsenic. I mean, I don't want, I wonder if there's non wicked ways to administer arsenic. I don't think arsenic has any medical uses anymore. And I mean, by medical uses anymore, I mean it didn't have medical uses in the past, but I believed it, I believe it was used for some medical things in the past when they didn't realize it was poisonous. And just like today, when a rich young woman from a prestigious family ends up in court, Madeline was represented by the very best lawyer that money could buy. This was Mr. John Inglis, who would go on to become the Solicitor General for Scotland. That's an important lawyer. This case, however, would always remain his most famous, and surely one of his most difficult. I mean, the evidence stacked up in favor of the prosecution. The victim was blackmailing the defendant. The defendant purchased arsenic several times in the months the victim suffered poisoning. The defendant fled town following the victim's death. You gotta, like, legal defenses available, insanity, I guess, or however that works in Scotland, and just saying, you know, uh, he drove me to it, blah, 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 and hoping for a reduced sentence. Maybe you were set up because it's so obvious. What's more, Madeline had already been so thoroughly disgraced that a character assassination by the prosecution would be just like digging up a grave and shooting at the coffin. As the same law journal from the time put it, she was seen as a foul and determined homicide because having fallen into the corrupting hands of her lover before marriage, her passions had been both excited and gratified imprudently. This old language is so funny. <laughs> Remember, ladies, if you have sex before marriage, you will become a killer. It's only a matter of time. This Victorian England, after all, what are you doing? <laughs> it's terrible. Not really. Don't give in to these impulse lusts, or you might as well start stocking up on weaponry and worshipping the devil right now. That's not to say that a bit of casual sex will make you a particularly good killer, though. It's certainly dinner for Madeline. The prosecution's case featured all sorts of damning evidence, such as record books from the pharmacy where she had bought the arsenic. All retailers were required to keep logbooks of poison purchases for this exact reason. That feels very modern. Like, I, I felt like in the past this wasn't really kept a very good track of, but I guess it was. Now, what's that one? The, uh, when you're cooking crystal meth and you have to buy, like, I, from Breaking Bad, they buy the, it's like a, is it a decongestant pill? And they have to keep track of people who buy lots of it because they're not really congested. They're cooking meth. All these trend, these transactions were recorded on February the 21st and the 6th of March under her name. That was an error. It's like, I'm going to poison my I'm going to poison this person who's blackmailing me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy the poison that I used to kill him. And I'm going to buy it and write my name in the book. Really? What's more, they even brought forth Mary Perry, the one who'd introduced the couple to testify against Madeline. She recounted a conversation with Pierre from February the 17th when he had reportedly said, I cannot think why I was so unwell after getting that coffee and chocolate from her. If she were to poison me, I would forgive her. 
Well, you're dead, so, I mean, you don't know. That sounds a little on the nose, but damning nonetheless. It also confirmed the prosecution's argument that the cups of cocoa and coffee which Madeline gave Pierre during their meetings would likely be the vector for this hypothetical poisoning, or as I like to say, alleged poisoning. The landlady revealed how Pierre had suffered two other serious bouts of illness, which according to the letters and diary coincided with the late night visits into Madeline's house. The diary itself, though, was ruled inadmissible as evidence. Ingle successfully argued that proper cross-examination was impossible given the current state of the diary's owner, meaning it would be given unfair weight. It was a blow to the prosecution, but would it matter in the grand scheme of things? Probably not. Okay, so Pierre, you kind of got away with writing down your crimes. I mean, wow. Perhaps it wouldn't have if everything else had gone their way, but that wasn't the case. Oh, is she going to go free? What was the title of this episode again? The Poisonous Romance. It doesn't give a clue as to whether she got away with it. Anyway, we're going to find out soon enough. I mean, but now's the indication that she probably did. See, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Pierre had in fact visited Madeleine each time he got ill, they needed the letters to clearly display the dates of their encounters. Since these were the old-timey equivalents of sex, however, the couple weren't exactly sticklers for formality. The letters weren't dated, so the postmarks on the envelopes were the only clues. As we know, Pierre's ones were all burned, and he never actually sent his, his in the post anyway. That just left Madeleine's, and unfortunately, a few crucial ones had postmarks which were too smudged or crossed out to read. Eventually, it was revealed that a large amount of the letters were actually found without an envelope at all, and had all just been stuffed into an empty one by the police. All the letters offered was some shock value to turn the jury against the loose women they were supposed to pass judgments on. When summarizing the prosecution's case, the presiding judges reported as saying that they were written without any sense of decency and in most licentious terms. Slut-shaming was a little more eloquent back in those days, but still clearly recognizable. We keep hearing that these letters were packed with details that should appall anyone in their right mind. So, well, what was actually in them? I mean, anyone in their right minds. But this was Victorian England, so they were all a bit weird. So what was actually in them? Cheeky flirting? Sexual requests, play-by-play recaps of their most impressive sessions, complete with Karma Sutra diagrams and ratings for each. No, I'm going to guess that it's all going to be really, really tame. Well, let's take a look at some examples written by Madeline. How do you keep warm in bed for I am not a bit warm? I often wish I had you with me. Would you not, sweet love, put your arms around your mini, fondly embrace her and make her warm? Ah, sweet one, I know you would. (laughs) It's very soft, isn't it? Cuddling. Oh, cover your ears, children. Anyway, back to the timeline problem. In the absence of a reliable paper trail, eyewitnesses were needed. But as we know, the couple were well well versed in avoiding the prying eyes of their neighbors. Nobody has come forward to take the stand, so the prosecution couldn't back up their chronology of events with anything other than the diary, which, as I said, was not admissible. One man did reportedly come forward to tell the papers he had seen the couple meeting on the night before Pierre's death, but this was unverified and happened too late in the trial to be included anyway. It sounds like Madeline is going to get away with this, not because she's a brilliant criminal. In fact, it seems like she's a terrible criminal, but it just seems that everything is going her way, and I imagine she also has a kick-ass and expensive lawyer. Even with these few setbacks, however, the odds remain stacked against Madeline. Mounds of circumstantial evidence and stains in her character meant that she would more than likely find herself hanging from a rope before the year was out. Ah, yes, the past. It's like, I mean... I don't really know where I stand on the death penalty, but I think in this case where the murder was committed because someone was blackmailing her, I mean, yeah, she murdered someone, but and she should go to prison. But I think in this case, maybe we, we shouldn't be hanging people, but this was the past. 
the past was the worst. The papers wrote that she sat in court with sadness in her expression, but no trace of that anxiety and deep mental suffering to be expected in a woman charged with such a dreadful crime and with her life in such imminent danger. Oh yeah, the press really didn't like her, so they're not going to paint her as some sort of saint. At the end of each day's sessions, she had to endure a carriage ride back to the jailhouse past gawking crowds who turned out to see the murderous gentlewoman from the papers. And in the mornings, she took the same journey in reverse, arriving at court with a fresh lineup for humiliation. This included testimony from her ex-fiancé, William Minnick. I say ex because understandably he decided to break off the engagement once he found out that 50% of Madeline's fiancés had died suspicious deaths. Yeah, no, uh, you can't blame him. Even her own family took the stand to pick her life apart. They were backing her up, but still, the embarrassment must have been off the charts. Well, I mean, good at least for her family for sticking by her. Her teenage sister Janet told the jury how she hadn't noticed Madeline getting up on the night of the alleged third poisoning. The two shared a bed, and Pierre would only usually risk coming into the bedroom window if Madeline's father were away on business, meaning Janet would be sleeping with their mother. On the night of the death, however, that wasn't the case. The defense had plenty of witnesses like this lined up to try and turn the tide in Madeline's favor. Some of them testified that Pierre attempted suicide several times before. Others backed up one of the stranger parts of Madeline's alibi, that she had bought the arsenic to rub, up her, rub on her face for cosmetic purposes. I knew there was some use for arsenic in the past, and I, I now I vaguely remember it was cosmetic. Maybe it was to make the face look more pale than it was? I don't know if I'm right. That's right, Inglis had licensed physicians take the stand to testify that rubbing arsenic on your face to look pretty was a legit thing. It was a very different time. Uh, agreed, but I think him taking to the stand to do that didn't mean that he was wrong. It, I mean, obviously, in today's science, he was wrong, but in the time it wasn't like, you know, it wouldn't be like today, saying, yeah, yeah, she was rubbing cyanide on her face for health. Although we do inject botulinum toxin to get rid of our wrinkles, so yeah, weird times still. On the poison books, Madeline had written that she would use it to kill rats, reportedly because she was self-conscious about buying it for her skin. She never used a fake name either, which suggests perhaps she didn't foresee any real reason to hide her identity. The testimony of the apothecary staff also revealed another little detail which would sow doubt in the minds of the jurors. The arsenic in Pierre's stomach was reportedly the standard white, but the kind bought by Madeline was colored. That was standard practice back then, as it would be easy enough to confuse plain arsenic for flour or other common household substances. Since nobody wanted poison cake lawsuits on their hands, soot or indigo were often added to make the poison distinguishable. On all three occasions, she purchased the arsenic February the 21st, March the 6th, and March the 18th, she had left with the soot-colored varieties. And even the coroner said that he hadn't been asked to specifically check the color, and there was no guarantee it would have shown up. Regardless, the argument sowed a good bit of doubt among the panel. These details, along with the prosecution being unable to lay out a concrete timeline, would prove to be the deciding factors in the whole affair. Eight days into the trial, the jury retired for just 30 minutes before returning to deliver their verdict. Pretty much everyone in the gallery expected Madeline to hang, so when a verdict of not proven was announced, the whole place erupted. The American Law Reg Register reported that the jury, with the knowledge of the verdict, which was expected at their hands, were actually apprehensive when they acquitted the prisoner, that they might, on this account, suffer violence on returning from the court through the virtuous and indignant mob. Yep, this was Victorian Scotland's version of the OJ trial, and the jurors had genuine fear of retribution given how invested the public had become in the case. I, I mean, I admire the jurors in a case like that, because... Yeah, the, the public have seen you. They know who you are. I mean, th maybe they should be secret jurors at that point because it's really going to bias them. But the fact that they came back anyway, 
Yeah, wow, okay. In the courtroom, the judge even had to order some people grabbed out of the crowd and thrown into the dock for a scolding. Madeline, meanwhile, was escorted out of the courtroom and transported home to Glasgow. Whether she had just won unlikely justice against a tide of public hate or simply gotten away with murder is up for you to decide. Ah, I kind of feel like, I mean... There's a little bit to go, so I guess Callum's going to analyze this a bit more. But, I mean, based on the evidence at hand that we have here and how everything went, it does seem like she was guilty. But the point is, like, not proven isn't not guilty. And when you pronounce someone guilty, you've got to prove it beyond all reasonable doubt. And I guess her very expensive lawyer did manage to prove that there was some doubt. Arguments in her favor. Now, I understand that most of you are probably on the latter side of that fence. I mean, she looks pretty massively guilty on the face of things. But in the interest of fairness, we have to look a little closer at the arguments in her favor. And thankfully, there's plenty for us to chew on. Plenty which suggests that Madeline might just have been the unlucky victim of Pierre's accidental death, or worse, his spiteful suicide. The first things to consider are simply circumstantial. Why, when all she really needed to do was destroy the letters, would Madeline poison her lover? That is the question I asked earlier on. And definitely, as her defense lawyer... That is the question I would raise. It's like, she could have just kept the relationship going and destroyed the letters, or she could have worked out a way to destroy the letters without, you know, if you can poison him, you can probably figure out how to destroy the letters. Also, he's totally into you. He's like smitten with you. Uh, you could probably figure something out. All of this, all this would do would guarantee that the letters would be found. She would have the exact same scandal on her hands, plus the murder charge. If it really was a murder, it was a poorly conceived one, a fact made stranger still, since she had plenty of time to come up with a better plan. At the end of the day, why not just set fire to his boarding house? I mean, I'm not condoning arson. Good, Callum. You don't want to encourage crimes. Let me make that very clear. Those days are behind me. Oh, Callum. The mystery of your past. But I guess I would take it over murder if I had to choose. And the mechanics of the murder itself are quite strange. I'm not sure how many of you like a spoonful of arsenic in your coffee, but I have it on good authority that it is not very pleasant. For Pierre to have ingested the huge amounts he found in his body, Madeline would have had to pack those late night drinks pretty full of rat poison. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna taste of something, right? Is, it, is that the one that tastes like almonds? Or maybe that's cyanide? There's some poison that apparently tastes like almonds, because almonds originally were poisonous, and now they're not. But I, and I think the poison makes the almond, the almond poison make the that almonds can make cyanide, something, something like that. I don't know. It's, Callum unfortunately didn't research this. He, you know, why would he? How then did he not notice? Was her coffee always that bad that a touch of sooty poison actually improved the taste? It's unlikely. Not even Starbucks. Hey, <laughs> Callum says insert least favorite coffee shop. I quite like Starbucks. It's strong. It tastes like coffee. It's pretty good. Um, I, I kind of like all coffee. I don't like that new hipster coffee that doesn't really taste like coffee. Uh, so let's say that. On top of that, the coroner reported such huge amounts in Pierre's system, somewhere north of 200 grains worth, that he would have had to drink a lot of coffee to hit the dosage. Apparently 20 grains is about the maximum, which would have dissolved into each cup. So he's drinking 10 cups of coffee. I mean... This does seem unlikely, doesn't it? Suicide, didn't they say that he tried to commit suicide several times previously? I mean, I know it was just someone arguing for the uh, prosecution, but who knows? This is all fairly good at like, I mean, it's definitely not disproving her guilt, but importantly, of course, we're not trying to disprove guilt. We're trying to prove guilt. Innocence is assumed, even in Victorian England, Scotland. 
Sorry. Don't get me wrong, I've smashed 10 cups of coffee in a row when deadlines were looming, but it's pretty strange to imagine Pierre chilling with his girlfriend and knocking back cup after cup of disgusting poison brew. We know he had apparently mentioned the passing possibility of being poisoned to Miss Perry, so he'd be pretty dumb to accept that many drinks. Especially from the person you are blackmailing. So it would take so much stupidity to trick someone into swallowing that quantity of arsenic, what other solution could there be? Well, remember how I told you Madeline was apparently a fan of rubbing arsenic solution onto her skin? Well, she wasn't alone in this. In fact, the Victorian apparently saw arsenic as a magic solution to all of life's problems. It was cheap and abundant, a byproduct of the metallurgy industry which drove the Industrial Revolution. In a bit, I've no, I have no idea of the science here. How do you get, like, arsenic left over from metallurgy? Honestly, I'm not even sure what metallurgy is. In a bid to profit off their waste products, the mill owners pushed various nonsense applications which were backed by doctors at the time. Ah, the past. <laughs> Just pay the doctors and they'll say everything's wonderful. Although, I mean... The pharmaceutical industry today does leave, you know, something to be desired. Imagine taking arsenic to cure your asthma, cure cancer, or to bring back the spark in your marriage. Really? That's right, arsenic was a med medically prescribed aphrodisiac. After a Victorian gentleman had taken care of the rats in his basement, it'd snort the rest of the box and carry his wife up, wife up to the boudoir. But okay, maybe that wasn't exactly how it went but it was probably just as bizarre. So we know the Victorian culture found plenty of pseudoscientific uses for poison, and it was even reported in an edition of Scientific American from 1869 that certain peoples in Austria were believed to regularly eat it to strengthen their bodies against illness. The superstition took hold in the UK, which is how one Mr. Pierre L'Angeliere allegedly became a self-admitted consumer of the poison. It's such a huge amount. It's, he's got to be aware that he's eating it, no? The idea then is that perhaps Pierre was the victim of an accidental overdose. But why on his deathbed would he not reveal that to the doctor in the hopes of dodging the reaper? And how would someone who was experienced in eating arsenic swallow such a catastrophically huge amount without seeking help? This leads us to the second theory. Perhaps it was no accident at all. Now, it's worth saying before you go any further that Pierre, of course, never lived to defend himself from these charges. Nonetheless, they aren't just some recent theory. They were floated around in the papers and journals of the day as well. And much of the theory revolves more around the evidence we don't have rather than the evidence we do. That's to say, there was nobody who could definitively prove that Madeleine and Pierre met on the nights preceding his bouts of sickness. The one piece of proof we have is the journal written by Pierre. But can we trust him? I'm, this is fairly strong in, in Madeline's favor, because if he was doing this and like maybe he wanted to commit suicide and he wanted to set himself, uh, he wanted to like set Madeline up for his death, even though he was committed suicide, maybe. Again, this is all really strong stuff for a defense lawyer to use. It seems a little odd that he never bothered writing about their meetings until after Madeline attempted to break the whole thing off. And the fact that he made such an explicit mention of poisoning to Miss Perry, even identifying the drinks as the delivery method, stands out as just a little too direct fully agree. That's why some believe that the journal was written by Pierre in order to provide a false account of events for the police to find. Likewise, his exposition-heavy conversation with Miss Perry was supposedly to guide them in the direction of Madeline. That might be why he actually asked for Miss Perry on the night of his final illness. She was the one who was to unwittingly ensure the police were sent after innocent Madeline. The plan would, of course, require Madeline to be observed buying the poisons, so some have put the idea that Pierre asked or encouraged Madeline to make the purchases perhaps a bit of a stretch. But then again, he did hold her entire life in his hands. He could probably have made all sorts of demands while he still held on, held on to those letters. Yeah, we definitely know that Pierre is not above back blackmail. Also, it's entirely possible that Madeline did buy the, po the poison for the purpose that she said, for killing rats or using as a beauty thing or whatever, and then Pierre knew that and was like, this is a good way to set her up. 
Consider the fact also that Madeline's first purchase of arsenic happened two days after Pierre's first bout of sickness. Ooh. I didn't pick up on that the first time. That's interesting. Sure, we know the Victorians weren't short on the stuff, so maybe she had a box at home, but add to it that a witness gave testimony which suggested Pierre himself or someone who looked a lot like him had purchased an unidentified white powder on the day of his death. Even with all the pieces lined up like that, the entire theory rests on one thing. Did Pierre have the motive and willpower to end his life solely out of spite? He must surely have understood that his blackmail gambit was only a temporary thing. It was daft to imagine that he would ever be accepted as Madeline husband yeah and also the fact that he said if she poisoned me i would forgive her just makes me think that this guy is not right in the head and that he might just do this suddenly his dreams of climbing the social ladder were made to look like a stupid childish fantasy because of this, he had alluded to several acquaintances that he wanted revenge on Madeline for the humiliation. Moreover, the courtroom testimony revealed that he was of an impulsive vain character, and he often talked of committing suicide, according to the American Law Journal. I mean, if people are going to pick apart the woman's character in the case, then let's do the same for the guy. We already know he had a spiteful streak in him, given the blackmail, and the Law Journal goes further, saying, There was evidence that Langelaire was addicted to the practice of lying in different forms. He was a vain, vaporing person, fond of talking very freely and with great exaggeration about himself and his doings. <laughs> Callum writes, he was a dick, basically. He does seem like a bit of a dick, doesn't he? But was he enough of a dick to end his own life just to get back to his soon-to-be ex? It's perhaps not as far-fetched a theory as it might seem at first glance. The defense team had brought forward a witness who revealed that Pierre had once stabbed himself when he was turned down by a woman and that he was about as emotionally stable overall as that little episode suggested. It's easy to see why the jury was unable to decide one way or the other. Given any lack of evidence to back up the prosecution's theory, this alternative carries just about as much weight. It's simply a different interpretation of the same shaky circumstantial evidence. Could it be that despite his relative success in work and social life, Pierre was genuinely suicidal and decided that losing his young lover to another man was the final straw? In a cleverly planned sequence of events, he set up a line of dominoes to make himself seem like the victim of murder, one last middle finger to Madeline on his way out of the door. I don't think this is unreasonable at all. Like, I can see why the... At first I was like, ah, she's guilty. She's guilty, she's guilty. But now we see the other side of things and definitely see the argument that the defense would put forward. I'd, I'd probably say not guilty. I mean, I don't know whether she's guilty. I, I, I mean, I'd say she's not guilty, but I don't know if she's innocent either. I'm not sure. And that's enough to say no, she shouldn't hang. Aftermath. So was it a shoddily executed murder by an inexperienced young killer, or a Gone Girl-style plot to frame her? Make of it what you will. Of course, the simplest explanation is most often the right one. It's Arkham's razor, after all. But there are too many stretches in both versions of events that it seems bizarre that either of them could be true at all. We could spend all day chasing our tails, but in the end, we'd never know. What I can tell you for sure, though, is what happened to Madeline Smith following her acquittal. As you can imagine, with all the papers climbing over each other to get at you, it's quite hard to return to normal life. And given the shame she had brought upon her family, it's likely she didn't feel too comfortable in her own home either. So Madeline attempted a disappearing act as best she could. She changed her first name to Lena and moved to London. There, she married the artist George Wardle in July of 1861. He worked as the business manager to William Morris, who was basically a rock star in the wild world of Victorian arts and craft. Their marriage lasted for quite a few years and brought them a son named Thomas, but eventually things fell apart. Madeline ended up moving to America, along with 90% of other people trying to flee their past in those days. 
days. She married once again and settled down in New York City. By the 1920s, everyone in the UK had pretty much forgotten the case. Madeline was assumed to be long gone, which is why people were shocked when an edition of the Scotsman newspaper reported in 1926 that she was alive and well. I'm going to assume that the headline was, You'll never guess what these celebrities are up to now. Number nine will shock you. I hate those bloody clickbait articles you see all over the internet such and then you click on it and it's just nonsense just and the picture never has anything to do with the article i actually made a video all about this just because it was pissing me off just two years later madeline passed away under the name lena wardle she aged 93 her legacy lived on through various plays books films and internet crime shows hosted by handsome english gentlemen for decades to come <laughs> academics continue to be interested in the case as well largely thanks to the sheer weight of vitriol heaped upon madeline at the time. I'm not sure what crime show is hosted by a handsome English gentleman. Callum, I have to dig that one up. Whether she was guilty or not, the fact the papers laid into her doubly hard for the crime of basic human sexuality with, was massively telling about the culture of oh-so-moral Victorian Britain. Take a look at this quote from the Glasgow Sentinel, who called her one of the most abnormal spirits that now and then rise up in society to startle and appall us. Yeah, I mean that, uh, premarital sex. Terrible. Whichever theory you believe, I bet you agree Madeline was hardly the most vicious or terrible killer out there, not even close. Nowadays, we save that level of condemnation for the Epsteins of the world, not young women with secret boyfriends. Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Epstein didn't kill anyone, right? He was just a rapist. But he was worse. Yeah, he was worse. Definitely worse. And that's all for the story of Madeline Smith, the young woman whose romantic misstep led her towards a desperate and miscalculated murder. Or perhaps a young woman whose romantic misstep put her on the receiving end of a terrible man's suicidal spite. We'll never know for sure. It's the sort of case that has the familiar echoes of modern-day crimes, especially those where young women and their private lives are involved. Rest assured that the next time something like this pops up in the news, you'll see some very similar judgments thrown around. At any rate, we can perhaps look back on the case nowadays with a more sympathetic eye. At the very worst, Madeline was a desperate victim of blackmail who made a terrible choice when trying to get out of it. She hardly belongs alongside Manson and Bundy. And she definitely isn't. She is free. She didn't go to jail. She ended up living to 93 years old after marrying two more times, having kids, and moving to America. It's pretty great. Seems like things worked out for her. If there's one thing you should take away from today, it's that a drop of arsenic a day keeps your doctor away. <laughs> Couple it with an asbestos cracker and a teaspoon of opium before bed, and you'll never need to visit a clinic ever again. For legal reasons, I should point out that that was all said sarcastically. The real takeaway is that Victorians, despite their prim and proper image, were absolutely mental. Yeah, I mean, oh, those signs of the day. I don't know if asbestos crackers were a thing, but opium, just casual consumption, was a thing. Cocaine as well. It was pretty wild back in the day. Dismembered appendices. Number one. Part of the reason Madeline couldn't escape the public eye after her trial was the strange verdict of not proven. It's a verdict that was unique to the Scottish legal system, and it meant that she wasn't guilty, but certainly not exonerated either. That ambiguity gave license to the rumor to, to the rumor mills and gossipers to keep reprinting the story over and over. I feel like we've come across the uh, the not proven thing in a previous episode, but I don't remember which one. Or it might have been a video I do on other channels. I have several YouTube channels, if you're unfamiliar. Number two. Back in 2018, some evidence was supposedly uncovered, which might be enough to convince us of Madeline's guilt. Wow, we're really doing this now? It's 2018. True crime author, although here we are digging this up right now in 2021. True crime author Denise Mina was attending a book signing for her recent novel when she met a couple of city archivists who claimed some items from the case had been recently tested 
requested by their health and safety staff in preparation for an exhibition. The cup allegedly used to poison Pierre showed traces of arsenic. Ooh. Okay, that's pretty interesting, but I mean... Uh, yeah, who knows. Number three. Despite the journalistic investigations which tracked her down, there's a solid chance that Lena Ward or Sheehy wasn't actually Madeline at all. The death certificate suggested that the person was actually 30 years her junior, so we might never know what eventually came of her. Some say that she still roams the earth to this day, sprinkling arsenic into the cocoa of unsuspecting Casanovas where she wanders. Actually, nobody said that. I just made it up on the spot. Sorry. That's okay, Callum. I forgive you. And this is the end of the episode today. This has been another episode of The Casual Criminalist. This was written by Callum. I, as always, have been your host, Simon. If you're watching this on YouTube, why not smash that like button below? Or if you didn't like it, there's a dislike button you can use. If you're listening to this in its podcast form, please consider leaving a review wherever you get the show. That would be amazing. It helps this show grow and reach more people, which is obviously great. And I'll see you next time.